Uh, I want to just read the first six verses of Genesis 26. That's where we are today. So if you've got your Bible, you can be open in there to chapter 26. And uh, I'll wait till you all get it and kind of let the choir get down because I know that's very self-conscious to be doing that while I'm reading. So um, I've been there before. That, that verse that uh, Pastor Andy's the passage he read, um, have you ever heard the little chorus that came out of the 70s? Uh, straight scripture, yeah. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Man, it's, uh, that's how I learned those verses. Yeah, exactly. A lot of chorus out of the 70s, uh, but specifically that, it was just word for word out of the Bible. But anyway, uh, 26, so I'm going to read the first six verses. And so listen carefully. Now, there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land and I will be with you and will bless you. And to you and to your offspring, I will give all these lands and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offering as the stars of your offspring. Let me back that up. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac settled in Gerar. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what we can learn from your word. Lord, help us today as we take these lessons uh, we see in Isaac's life and apply them uh, in our lives today. Uh, Lord, uh, sometimes it's hard for us to imagine someone lived uh, those thousands of years ago has anything to do with us today. But Lord, it seems like Men don't change. Time just keeps going on. And so we pray that we would learn the lessons that must be learned over and over and over again to every generation. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all. Y'all can sit down. Uh, I never know if you'd rather just keep standing or want to sit down for two seconds and get back up. So, And I do appreciate singing the songs of faith. Uh, they are helpful to us. Well, today, uh, last week I called it the new generation because... Uh, new generations coming on board but today it's kind of the same but different it's a new generation but the same story I don't know if you caught that when I was reading those first six verses but it seems like we heard that before because we did it's almost word for word exactly what happened to Abraham now here's the difference uh, is, is in the very first verse it says there was a famine just like the former famine, but this isn't that one. It's a new one. So we do get that. We, 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 we are looking at this kind of generationally. You, we hear a lot of talk today about generations. It, it seems to me to have begun, uh, at least in my own experience, when we talked about the boomer generation. I don't know if anybody named a generation before the boomers. I am a boomer. Uh, my wife actually comes from the generation behind me because I'm on the tail end of the boomers. Um, and uh, after the boomers came the busters. And she's a buster and I'm a boomer. Uh, her mom and I are in the same generation and she's behind us. But anyway, that's weird to me. But anyhow, um, you know, then came the busters and then came like Gen X and then Gen X and then millennials. And, and I don't know, there might have been some in between. And it, it kind of gets confusing. Uh, the boomers were those, my generation, born to those who fought World War II, gave their life and their blood to keep us from bad political ideologies that we're voting on in a couple of weeks. Uh, today, you got that choice. You can go with people that we used to fight over that uh, and vote for them, or you can vote for life. So that's up to you. But uh, you got that opportunity. But here's, here's what is going on. 
because it's kind of hard to keep up with that. What is a generation? That becomes, somebody said, well, it's a lifespan. Yeah, well, Methuselah lived a thousand years almost. So is a generation a thousand years? I don't know. I do know that a generation is my lifespan. And that's what I want you to catch on to, that a generation is your lifespan. And guess what? It didn't begin with boomers. God has been looking at generations in all of Scripture. In fact, Jesus said that the generation that sees these signs won't leave the earth, in other words, won't die until he comes back. And so some people believe that we have seen those signs. And back in the, back in the day, there was a big discussion, well, what's a generation? You know, well, 33 years. So they didn't happen in 33 years. So maybe it's 50 years. Maybe, you know, we don't know. Like I said, God could be counting a thousand years of generation. We don't know. Exactly, because he never gave us a time and said, this is a generation. But the reason I say it is in our lifetime is I want you to understand something clearly. I want you to, if you will, keep your finger in Genesis, but look with me in Acts 13. I I hope you can turn there because I I really want you to see this verse. I think it's a very important verse. It teaches us a whole lot in a few words. I want to give you the context of this verse. In this verse, Paul is preaching... And uh, this is early in his ministry. He and Barnabas have just become missionaries. And Paul is preaching. And he's explaining why Jesus is the Messiah spoken of by the prophet. He calls him David. King David. He calls him a prophet. And because the Bible said that David's throne would not cease. That there would always be someone on the seat of that throne. And And the Jewish people did understand that their Messiah would come out of the family of David. Jesus was a descendant of David both from his mother and his father. He was a descendant on both sides from David's line. And he uses the prophecy of David that God would not let his holy one The Messiah, that's the word for Messiah, see corruption. Now, the word corruption means rottenness. And it means that when their bodies died, put in the ground, their bodies corrupted. They rotted away and turned back into dust. Now, we get all icky about that today, and we try to preserve the body even after it's dead. They buried it. It turned to dust eventually. And we come down to verse 36 in Acts 13 as Paul's preaching. And he says this. For David, the guy who said that, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. So what Paul is trying to prove is David wasn't talking about himself. He's talking about coming Messiah. Jesus fulfilled that by rising from the dead on the third day. You with me? You got where I'm going? But here's what I want you to get from that verse. I had to explain the verse before I applied it because I don't want you to misapply it. The Bible says David served the purposes of God in his generation. Guess what? I cannot serve the purposes of God in the generation before me because I wasn't born yet. I cannot serve God in the purposes of the generation that comes behind me because I'm going to be seeing corruption in my body. I can only serve God in my generation. So if you're alive, you're in your generation And this is the only time you got. And then you're going to (laughs) die. Don't you love the straightforwardness yet beauty of the poetic language of the Bible? David, after serving the purposes of God in his generation, croaked. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, life's tough. Then you die, right? That's the, that's verse 36 in the Stuart translation. (laughs) 
died. It says he fell asleep. He died and his body saw corruption. He, he rotted in the ground. I mean, the Bible's kind of graphic when it says that. It's just a word we don't use much, corruption. And so my point is that you can only serve God in your generation. This is why, and this is what I want, we're going to see today in Genesis, that God comes to each generation and presents himself to them so that they can either follow him or not follow him, accept him or reject him. This happens over and over and over and over. I'm a parent. I'm a parent of three, a grandparent of five so far. And that, that's how many that come, are coming after me right now. And I just wonder what, what's going to go on with, with my kids and my grandkids. Go ahead and put this up on the board, by the way, if you will. The, here's what I want you to take home with you today. Leave a godly heritage to those who follow behind you. Because I want to show you something today. And that is that some people believe in, in a generational curse. What, but what, what we mean by that is what the father did, the child is doomed to repeat. That is not true. But what is true is what the father does influences the decisions of his children. Okay? And I want you to see that very, very clearly. And so there are some people that had really bad examples growing up. And they said, I don't want anything to do with that. And they rejected that influence and adopted a good influence. A godly influence became what God wanted to be. There are people who are raised in great homes. And when God presented himself to them, they rejected God and they went their own way. And of course, parents are going to pray for those especially hard. And, and we pray for all our kids. But it breaks our heart uh, when our children go astray. We see Isaac repeating what his dad did. Now, Isaac wasn't even born when his dad did it. Was not born yet when his dad did what he did, which is the same thing he does here in verse, beginning in verse 7. I want you to see, though, in those first six verses that the same things are there. A promise. There's the town, the Gerar. There's a famine. He goes to Abimelech. Same things Abraham did. And this famine is not the one of Abraham. The Bible makes it clear it's a new one. Because each generation has its own challenges. Isaac also faced a famine, a challenge. And God knows his promises in each generation because he is the eternal one. God made a promise before the world began. The Bible says Jesus is the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. He says to his promise, before I formed the world, I knew you. And proclaimed you a prophet to the nations, he says to Jeremiah. God knows us. He says, before any of your days were written, he already had written down in his book the day of your death. God is well acquainted with you. He knows your whole lifespan before you do. Now, I was born to Christian parents. But I have no clue what they did in their life with God unless they told me, right? I got to see them growing up. But my, my point is, they had a relationship with God. Doesn't mean I'm going to have a relationship with God. I have to come to that point. And since God is eternal and we keep dying generation by generation, he comes to each generation and gives them an opportunity to follow him and to obey his will. I want you to understand that children are not punished for their father's sin. And if you want the reference for that, it's all of the book of the chapter of Ezekiel 18. Uh, Ezekiel 18. I'm going to turn there now. I've got mine marked so I can get there a little faster. And the whole chapter, you ought to read the whole chapter. I'm going to come down and just look at a couple of verses there real fast. And that is uh, verses 20 to 24. It's, it's kind of long, but, but listen to just those verses. The soul who sins shall die. 
All right? The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. But if a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he's committed and keeps my statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of the transgressors, transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him. For the righteousness that he has done, he shall live. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? But when a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice and does the same abominations the wicked person does, shall he live? None of the righteous deeds that he has done shall be remembered for the treachery of which he is guilty and the sin he has committed, for then he shall die. So what is God saying? He's saying we each are going to be accountable to God for our sin. One of the greatest gifts you can ever give yourself is accepting responsibility for yourself. You'll never go anywhere in life if you're always blaming other people either for success or failure. That's on you. And here in Ezekiel, God says, I'm going to hold you accountable. I'm not going to charge your dad for your mess up. I'm not going to... But here's the deal. He talks about us having righteousness and unrighteousness. And as you read that, if you read that casually without the context of the whole Bible, you would think he's talking about being righteous in ourselves or, or, or good works. And what I want you to see there uh, in, in the New Testament, what is our righteousness? What is the righteousness of the Christian? Yes, it's Jesus Christ. Absolutely. The Bible says that Christ is, has imputed, and that's the word it uses, his righteousness to us. That's how we translate into English. What that word means, it means charge to my account. Now, I want to explain this to you. That, um, let's say you, you use a credit card and you, you buy everything on a credit card and then once a month you pay the bill off. So since you don't see the cash going out of your wallet, you go crazy one month and you can't pay the bill off. And all of a sudden, interest starts accruing. And you maybe repeat that mistake over and over. And before you know it, you've got a debt you can't pay. All right? You owe that debt. I'm a rich guy. I'm not. I'm a rich guy. And I realize that you are in financial trouble. And I come to you and I say, give me your bill. And I take your bill and I get the address off your bill. And I send them a money order or a check. I send them a payment that wipes your slate clean. Do you still owe the money? Yes, but not to them. You owe it morally to me, but I didn't ask you to do that. I just, now you go free. Your debt is paid. And the Bible says the soul that sins, it shall die. Adam sinned. Death came upon man. And everybody born to Adam was born a sinner. We did our own sinning. Not only did we inherit Adam's sin, but we did our own sinning. And we deserve death. And that's a bill we cannot pay. So Christ came and put on flesh and lived with us and lived a perfect life so that he owed zero on his credit account. And I owed death. And I couldn't pay it without going to hell and never getting out. So Christ said, give me your bill. And the Bible says he took the handwriting of ordinance that was against us and he nailed it to a tree and took it out of the way. So that salvation is now free to me, but it cost God his life. That he would live a perfect life and die on a cross for me. And the Bible says he took that righteousness that he had earned by being perfect and he imputed it 
charged it to my account. So when God pulls up my account on that heavenly computer, it says innocent. And when he looks at Christ, he sees the payment. So when the devil, who the Bible says is the accuser of the brethren, stands before God and says, look what Stuart did. What a loser. Why did you even pick him? Jesus steps up and goes, look at his account, Father. Oh, it's paid in full. He goes free. Get out of here, Satan. Do you get it? Each generation has to come to Christ for that benefit. My kids don't get it just because I'm their dad. I didn't get it just because I'm my, my parents' son. And they were both Christians. And the righteousness I have is not anything I do. It's the righteousness of Christ. You see, we say, well, we're, you know, we're just sinners saved by grace. So I'm just going to mess up. God doesn't ask you to do anything. He doesn't give you the grace to do it. So when he tells you to resist temptation, to flee sin, he gives you the grace to do just that. But speaking of us here on earth and as we live our life, our children are influenced by our parents' decisions. You see, there was a traumatic event happened to my dad one time. I'm going to finish this whole story so I can get back to the text here. But, but my dad, he was raised in church. He was raised in a religious environment. It was a, it was a Wesleyan Methodist, I believe, a Methodist church. So he knew the Lord. He, he, he knew about him. And I, I don't know exactly what that relationship was like then because all this happened way before I was born. In 1949, he's going to marry my mom. He was a sailor, and he lived uh, in Charleston. And he met my mom, and he decided he wanted to marry her. Asked her. She said yes. So he went home from the coast back up to the upstate of Spartanburg area to get all his money out of the bank and come back home. And on the way home, outside of Charleston, a place called Mont's Corner, a pig, a hog, I'd say hog, but my dad's riding a Harlan. Everybody thinks that he got in a, a motorcycle hit him. No, a hog hit him. A real oink oink hog came out of the woods and ran into the side of him and knocked him off that motorcycle. Now my dad told me the only reason that hog hit him was he had a friend riding with him on another motorcycle. That guy never owned one. He had just gotten his Harley. And since he was brand new at riding, he was a little bit more nervous. So my dad said we were only doing 55 miles an hour. So I said, well, how fast did you used to ride yours? He said, well, the speedometer registered 140. I said, yeah, well, I know that was on speedometer. But how, much, how, how fast did you go? He said, the speedometer registered 140. I said, yeah, but... How fast you? He said, son, I saw it bounce off 140. I don't know how fast I was going. <laughs> so at 55, he survived the wreck, but he was unconscious for 30 days and semi-conscious for 30 more. And this was in January when he wrecked. They married in July. He had a severe brain injury. When he woke up, became conscious. And this is his testimony to me. He said, I knew the only reason I was alive was because God kept me alive. And that was the end of any idea of not following the Lord and he read his word daily he prayed daily he witnessed daily going to church was not an option not only for us but for him my mom was a Christian she was raised by godly parents doesn't make me saved <laughs> but those events influenced me so that when God came and spoke to me I saw my dad had been perfectly obedient my mom as perfectly as a man could be and a woman can be. My mom had obeyed God in her life and seemed like a good idea if I'd do the same thing. 
And as I said, you can live a godly life and your kids will reject God. You can, some people have lived a horrible life and their kids fall in love with God and, and, and become saved. And you say, so why should I even try? Because I can promise you it's better to be a good influence than a bad one. It's a lot better. So children are influenced by their parents, but it's not a done deal. So I, I want you to see, at beginning of verse 6 of, of Genesis 26, that Isaac makes the same mistake his dad did. Now, I don't know if he just heard the story or what, because he wasn't alive when it happened. But maybe he heard the story and he thought, hmm, that's a good idea. So in verse 7, when the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, she's my sister. Now he's a liar. Abraham didn't lie. He just half lied, which is a whole lie, but he still lied. Because she was his sister, was also his wife. Rebecca's not his wife, it's his cousin. He didn't say it's my cousin, he says my sister. Well, that's what my dad said. Okay. For he feared to say, my, it's my wife thinking, lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebecca, because she is attractive in appearance. He thought she was hot enough, everybody wanted to marry her. But notice verse 8. When he'd been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. Now, if you translate that purely out of the Hebrew, it would say he saw Isaac, Isaacing with his wife. <laughs> he saw laughter laughing with his wife. That's what it says. But the context of that second Isaacing, that word laughing, has a context that a brother would not be doing with his sister. I'm going to leave it there. And he said, Isaac, come here. That ain't your sister. That's got to be your wife. Well, yeah, it's my wife. Why did you do that? Well, I was afraid y'all, you know, kill me just to get a hold of her. He said, man, what, somebody could have done something bad. Why would you do this? And so verse 11, Abimelech warned all the people, saying, whoever touches this man or his wife, he'll be put to death. And Isaac sowed in the land, and God blessed him. God blessed him, even just like his dad, he messed up and still God blessed him. Why? Because God wanted to bless him. And the man became rich and gained more and more until he became wealthy, possessions, flocks, herds, servants. And the Philistines envied him there in verse 14. And now the Philistines had stopped up and filled with earth all the wells his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham's father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us because you're mightier than us. He kicks him out. He said, man, you, you're getting too strong, getting too big. Now, by the way, this is Abimelech. That's who Abraham talked to, Abimelech. Later, you'll see Phicol. These same two names. And I said names and not guys because we don't know who they are. This could be Abimelech II and Phicol II. It could be a title rather than a name. But with Abraham, they are not called Philistines, but they have that name now. Philistines are a, kind of a weird people in the Bible. We can't go there, but... They appear and disappear out of history, and, and nobody's real sure where they came from. There's a lot of research going on, figure that out. But Abimelech could be Daddy Abimelech, Daddy Abraham, now son Abimelech, and son Isaac. We don't know. But Abimelech catches him. Same thing has happened. Get out of here. You've gotten too strong for us. Leave. And so Isaac departed, and he goes to the valley of Gerar in verse 17. He settles there, and again he digs the wells of water. Been dug in the days of Abraham's father. Philistines stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave the names his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley, found the well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen. So he starts naming these places. And they keep chasing Isaac away. Now what is happening? I want you to get back focused and placed where we are. 
God appears to Isaac and says, dude, I want to I bless you. I'm going to take care of you just like I took care of your daddy. And the first thing he does is not trust God and lies about who Rebecca is. Now God is blessing him to a degree, but he's always on the run. Every time he gets one of those wells dug, they come in, run him off, run him off, run him off. He's going through problem after problem. You know, God will speak to you in different ways. In, 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 the, in the series uh, called Knowing God, the author lists at least four ways God will talk to you. He'll talk to you through the word. He'll talk to you through prayer. He'll talk through you through godly counsel in the body of Christ. And he says and he'll talk to you through your circumstances. So if you're not in the word and you're not praying and you're not coming to church, you only left God one option. Circumstances. When your circumstances go bad, the first thing I do is go to God and say, God, what's going on? Am, am, am I the cause? Am I, do you, do you, are you trying to tell me something? Because it may not be trying to tell you something. It just might be what's going on. Or you might have something he wants you to learn. But it's always a good place to start to ask yourself, where am I in this situation? Well, Isaac, I believe God was pushing him, pushing him, pushing him because he hadn't fully trusted God yet. And we see this all the way down there through verse 17 through 22. But in verse 23, God shows back up and he makes it very clear to Isaac what's going on. Look there in verse uh, 23. And from there he went to Beersheba. And the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham your father. Fear not. For I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. And catch verse 25. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord. Isaac gets it and begins to worship God. And it goes on to say, and he pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug wells. I want you to see verse 25. Because verse 25 sums up Isaac's life. And at this point is when God reveals himself not just to tell him something, but He's challenging him to say yes to him. And Isaac does. His first response is to worship. But there we see that he, he lived in tents, he dug wells, and he worshiped God. Those are the three things that typify his life. Kind of a simple life. Live in a tent, dig a well, worship God. Sounds pretty cool, doesn't it? But I, I want to just apply how that could be meaningful to you and I. The idea of tents, what is a tent? It's a temporary dwelling, isn't it? For, for some of us, a tent is a place that we spend a night in misery and then we put it away for 10 years, right? Well, this guy was content to live in tents. It's a temporary dwelling. Never seen anybody build a, a driveway in front of a pup tent. You know, put in canvas to canvas carpeting. Hang an air conditioner in the back flap, you know. No, it's a tent. You unfold it, set it up, sleep in a little bit, fold it back up, go to the next place. It's temporary. Guess what? We live in a tent. It's called our body. Listen to what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 through 15. He says this. Well, I'll back up to 12. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. Verse 13, I think it right as long as I am in this body. And the word there is a tent. To stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my tent will be soon. It says body, so the same word as tent. As our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure, 
you may be able at any time to recall these things. First of all, it is a beautiful picture. Peter says, I'm just living in a tent. One day I'm going to leave the tent. I'm going on to heaven, going to my home, my mansion. I'm going to get something better there, so I'm just living in this tent. But secondly, I want you to catch, our body is a tent. It's temporary. Listen, folks, we live in a culture that glorifies beauty and youth. You, you don't believe me? Listen, unless you just live like off the grid somewhere and you never see anything in popular culture, we, you've got these actresses that are 70 and 80 years old coming out with their new fitness video that you will buy and give them money that they got to look like that because the plastic surgeons stretch their skin so tight they smile their pants are going to pop. <laughs> Nobody naturally ages like that folks. Alright? Because we worship that idea of perfection. Some of them go so far they look grotesque and no longer look normal. Why? Because they don't want to think about they've got to exit the tent Paul said my outer man's wasting away day by day by day he was he was you know you know you're old when you sit around and talk about your surgeries and ailments right we got plenty of them Paul said but my inner man's being renewed day by day man getting stronger and stronger and I'm going to leave this tent because this tent can't hold us eventually we get to go on Isaac was content to live in a tent because he was looking for the city. Not a city, but the city, just like his daddy. Well, he dug wells. That represents a life watered by God's blessing. Here's what Jesus said, come unto me, and I will pour out of you fountains of living water. The Holy Spirit is our blessing. Not only do we live in a tent, but the Holy Spirit is content to live in our tent with us. Now, if that don't blow your mind, I don't know what will. That God himself would live with us, the person of the Holy Spirit, in this temporary dwelling. That's the only reason we can stand it, is because he is with us. In fact, I want to show you that in the scripture as well. Because God does not, when I was talking about God blessing Isaac, God does not give us a generational curse, but he does give us a generational blessing. If you want to see it, it's in the book of Deuteronomy and chapter 5. And verse 9. I'm going to read it to you real quick. Because if you read it just surfacely. You might miss what it's it's saying there. And I think it's really something you want to know. Deuteronomy chapter 5. I ran out of ribbon so I got to find it. 5 verse 9. It says this. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. I'm talking about foreign gods. For I the Lord your God. Or I Yahweh your God. Am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Hold on preacher. Whoa. Time out. About 25 minutes ago you said God didn't make children pay for the sins of their father. You didn't read everything that was in that verse. It said to those who hate me. In other words we inherit the sin of Adam and our children inherit the same sin from us. And if we hate God, that sin is never taken care of. But those who turn to God, notice what he says. I will continue to bless you. I will continue to honor you generation by generation, showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. If you love God, if you come to God and let him pay for your sin, he loves you and he wants wants your family to love him. He will work within your family 
by you to bring them to know Christ. Now listen, you'll never be happier than your saddest child. I, I know that as a parent. And sometimes our kids do things we don't agree with. And so obviously they're wrong because, you know, we're always right, right? That's not true, but we think that. But friend, if our children are in trouble, we would move everything we could to help them. We pray for them. We, we hurt for them. We want to see God's blessing. Lay hold of God's promise. If you love God, he's going to continue to show favor. He shows favor to Isaac. And he gives him a well. God has given us the well of the Holy Spirit. And that's a bottomless one. That never runs out. And then though, let's go back to the first thing it said. He worships God. This worship reminds me of Romans chapter 12 verse 1 and 2. Because it represents a life sacrificed to the will of God. Isaac and Abraham seemed really good at making money. They are blessed. They get a whole lot of money. Uh, they've got herds and, and uh, the way that you, that you make money back then, they just make it a hand over fist. But he's willing to have a life sacrifice to the will of God. Instead of just making himself rich, he lives in a tent. He wanders about as a stranger in a land that God's promised to give him. And here's what Romans 12, 1 and 2 tells us. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice. A man named uh, Ian Hay, the founder of Cape and Ray Schools, said, if you're going to get up on God's altar, you better prepare for the altar to get a little warm. If you're going to be a sacrifice, you're going to feel the fire of God burning away the dross and the waste of your life. He says, present your body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Paul says it is our worship to come to God and surrender everything to him and let him burn away the stuff that's not going to matter in eternity. In verse 2, do not be conformed or pressed into the mold of this world, that culture that says we got to care more about the outside than the inside. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That word is metamorphosized like a caterpillar becoming a butterfly or a tadpole becoming a frog you're transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing you may discern what the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect why would you need to discern what the will of God is the only reason you need to know that is to obey it and if you're not living sacrifice you won't obey it if you're not living sacrifice you won't even know it you've got to surrender totally to God for he's going to trust you with anything if you live a life sacrificed to God, guess what our altar is? It's the cross of Jesus Christ. Six chapters before this in Romans 6, it says if we're crucified with Christ, we'll be raised with Christ. What we sang in the early, earliest part of the service, and Pastor Andy read us the verse, Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I. Christ lives in me, that imputed righteousness. And the life I live now in this flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Man, you can't beat it. You cannot beat it. Well, here's some things you can take home with you today. First of all, I'm asking them as questions today. What example do you want to leave when you're gone? What example do you want to leave when you're gone? Because you're leaving. Nobody gets out alive. Secondly, how will you glorify God in every area of your life? 
I mean, getting up in the morning at home, at work, financially, socially, emotionally. How do you glorify God in every area? Spiritually, of course. We, we think, oh, that's just for the spiritual. No, you're supposed to glorify God in how you do your job. You're supposed to glorify God in how you treat your family. You're supposed to glorify God in your hobby. Everything you do ought to be bringing glory to God. That's, that's the measurement of how you do what you do. It's not what you do, it's how you do it. And then thirdly, where does simplicity and worship mark your life? Where is it where you just say, you know what? I'm just going to put aside all that distraction and just simply worship God. Figure out what his will for me is. Look into his word and in prayer and get with brothers and sisters and let's help each other to figure out what the will of God is. Where is that in your life? Where, what part of your life is marked by that? That you will give up things that distract in order to do what is most important, which is to know God and enjoy him forever. Lord God, in Jesus' name, none of us are sufficient for these things. Lord, they go way beyond our ability. So we are so thankful that not only did you pay the price for our salvation, but that's, that's one part of it. You paid to own us and to mold us into your image that we could honor you and serve you and worship you and, and that you will even re give us a reward of being with you in eternity. Lord, not because of something we could do because we couldn't even do it, but because what you will do through us. But Lord, that won't happen unless we're a living sacrifice, unless, like Isaac, we turn and say yes to you. Lord, at the end of that chapter 26, Abimelech comes back, makes a treaty with Isaac because he sees your hand on his life. He sees how powerful Isaac became. And Isaac even asked him, why are you coming to me? I thought you hated me. You threw me out. And Abimelech said, because we're afraid of you now. Lord, we, we don't want to make people afraid of us, but we want people to see the power of God on us so greatly that, that they want to know that God that we're serving, that what's going on, this, is, this shouldn't be happening. And so, Lord, I pray that we would get that lesson too, that we don't have to fear if we walk with you, for you'll take care of us. We would never laud that kind of power over someone, but, Lord, we want people to see you in us. And, Lord, I'm reminded that in the book of Revelation, these people are being martyred. We see that all through the book, but as your believers are martyred, you said those who endure to the end. And that these are the ones that have washed their robes clean in the blood of the Lamb by the word of his testimony and by giving their very life. So, Lord, it's not guaranteed to be an easy road. In fact, it might be a, a really hard one. But, Lord, you are worthy. You're worthy. We, we don't need to live for this temporary life. It's, ne it's never going, meant to be permanent anyway. We're going to die. The only important thing is how we live the generation we live. So, Lord, no matter what our parents were like, I just thank you. I had godly ones, but some people in here did not. And they've said yes to you. Lord, bless them, help them, show them. Lord, there are people in here that maybe don't even know you, Lord. They don't have the, the power of God in their life to even begin to understand and apply these things to their life. God, I pray that you would speak to their heart, that they would surrender their life to you right now. And the Lord, they'd let us know they did so we can, we can help them walk with you. Lord, that you want to do a work in their life that we can't do, that only you can do.
as you've done it in ours. So, Lord, we pray for them. We pray for ourselves. Lord, for we indeed are weak, but you are strong. And in our weakness, you show, uh, you show off that we glorify you by letting you do your thing through our lives. So, Lord, may we never despair. But, Lord, may we bow before your throne, trust you, depend upon you, ask you to do miracles in our life. Lord, bring us to the place of true repentance, of humble sacrifice of ourselves, of not caring about anything but your glory. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.